Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerooted podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Uh, just really inviting you into what is this experience as we continue to launch into fall of 2020 of being rooted in yourself, being rooted and tethered to the earth and to one another, given that we are still in the COVID pandemic and given the fact that we are um, very much still in the midst of the uprising <clears throat> that we see around us and all of what that means. And as we're coming on in the United States anyway, um, a very big and very important election and all of what we're seeing uh, is, is coming up in that, um, which includes a lot of issues around social location, um, race, politics, uh, who has, who hasn't, who has access, who doesn't, the way in which different people are treated differently, often uh, in ways that are legacies from uh, systems that were set up many, many centuries ago um, that play out today in very real ways. And so because we sort of talk about things in the outer world a lot uh, in the general news for this podcast, what we're talking about is something that is very near and dear to me, which is what is happening in our inner world. And I've invited Dr. Ruth Lanius, uh, MD, PhD, FRCP, the Harris Woodman Chair in Psyche and Soma, the Professor of Psychiatry, uh, and the Director of the Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Research Unit at the University of Western Ontario to be with us today. Uh, she's established the Traumatic Stress Service and the Traumatic Stress Service Workplace Program uh, services that specialize in the treatment and the research of post-traumatic stress disorder and related comorbid disorders. And she currently holds the Harris Woodman Chair in Mind-Body Medicine at the Schoolage School of Medicine and dentistry at the University of Western Ontario. And I'll just say one more thing. Her, her research interests focus on studying the neurobiology of post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment outcome research, examining various pharmacological and psychotherapeutic, psychotherapeutic methods. She's the author of, you know, hundreds of published papers and chapters and books and all of that. And, um, recently published a book, The Impact of Early Life Trauma on Health and Disease with Eric uh, Vermetten and Claire Payne. Welcome, Dr. Lanius Ruth. Uh, it's so nice to see you. Thank you for joining us on Rerooted. It's great to be here, Francesca. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure because, <clears throat> you know, as I was sort of doing the intro, and again, um, there's a lot to unpack. One of the first things that we were talking about in the off-camera piece or the green room is my question to you is, how does racialized trauma, what is racialized trauma? How does that live in the body from a person who has experienced racism um, from the outside, you know, um, as someone who perhaps is light-skinned or white-skinned, uh, you know, what does that mean in terms of systems of oppression and all of these things? Because we, we can look at the history, which I, I do, but we also have to see like what's actually happening inside. And um, you had a really interesting story about your experience with sort of first getting turned on to even looking at this. And perhaps that's something that we could start with that you might be able to share. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a few years ago. I was presenting at a conference and there was a workshop on racial trauma, which I attended. And it really opened my eyes to first the subjective experience of African-Americans living in America, the history and the tremendous daily stressors they're exposed to. 
And I was really embarrassed that, you know, I hadn't thought about this more. And I thought, my God, this is so important. And I tried to put myself into the shoes of somebody, you know, who's just walking down the street. And this was an example given as sort of, you know, a microaggression and a daily stressor. And the white person going to the other side of the street because they want to avoid the African-American person. I thought, my God, living with that on a daily basis, it just must be so difficult. And uh, I thought it's so important that we incorporate this into our understanding of trauma and in our study of trauma. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. So that was um, a few years ago now. And yeah. <clears throat> I love what you're saying because as someone who, you know, many of my listeners know, I was a journalist for nearly 20 years. Then I got into more studying neuroscience and, and, and mindfulness and, and different things and becoming a, a somatic psychotherapist. But that, that, that this idea of really interrogating trauma in the trauma models that are taught, I mean, interrogating racism and, and racial trauma in, within the trauma models hasn't really been unpacked very much, I don't think, as, as something that you're saying, like the cumulative effect of microaggressions and how is that different from like shock trauma, like a car accident or something, or even relational trauma um, in, a, in, a, in a nuclear family that might be white. Absolutely. And I think one way I think about it is that a lot of the trauma survivors we work with have been exposed to chronic inescapable stress, right? This could be, you know, emotional abuse, this could be physical abuse, this could be sexual abuse, but it's stress that you can't escape, right? And I think being an African American in the US, you're constantly being exposed to stress that you can't escape. Right. And I mean, it's shown that this can have, you know, very large effects on both mental and physical health, right, because of these chronic stressors. And of course, we know that there's differential responses to escapable versus inescapable stress. And I think those are also differential responses we need to think about here. So if the stressor is escapable, fight and flight response works really well, right? Because you flee or you fight and that gets you somewhere. Mm. But if the stressor is non-escapable, the body has to adapt to this chronic inescapable stress, right? And often what we see there are intense symptoms of helplessness, hopelessness, chronic depression, and sort of these passive defensive responses, right? Where you just shut down. Mm. And I think often we see a mixture, right? We see that people have these chronic passive defensive responses, chronic symptoms of hopelessness, and sometimes then they revert to lashing out. Mm. And then often they go back into these chronic feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's almost this, I don't know, you tell me, is that more the dorsal vagal kind of yes. shutdown? You know, the, the polyvagal theory, those are familiar with um, Stephen Porges' work. That's really the, the basic life threat, um, uh, you know, having to just base level not die. <laughs> exactly, right? And we're talking about the reptilian brain and, you know, this input constantly coming into the reptilian brain, 
you know, specifically the periaqueductal gray, which is a critical area for raw emotional responses, defensive responses, which then also connects to the vagus nerve and the dorsal vagus nerve and, you know, facilitates this shutdown. Right. And so I guess what I'm hearing you say is that for, and we're speaking broadly because we're speaking of general clinical populations in terms of social determinants of health, which include institutionalized, um, you know, racism for many years, this, this hierarchical oppression of, of really dehumanizing certain populations of people based on levels of pigmentation and melanation in the skin, but for no other reason than that that division serves to enable to extract a certain amount of labor from a certain group of people more so than others. And, and, and that can whole be, you know, the other, you know, historical social piece, how this lives in the person, how this lives in that population. What I'm hearing you say is there's a learned response in order to survive that has more to do with shutdown. And that as that then constant stressors with the microaggressions and things like that day to day, that that takes a toll on the physical health and well-being of uh, black and brown populations here, for example, in the United States. Absolutely. And I think we also need to think about what effect does this have intergenerationally, right? So a parent has experienced this, a parent carries this chronic hopelessness, then has a child, right? And has to teach the child what it's like to be colored and to be discriminated against and how to protect him or herself, right? And so I think we see this large intergenerational transmission of trauma and we really need to think about the mechanisms and how we can intervene at an individual and at a community level. Mm. Can we talk more about that? Like what happens in the brain, first of all, like physiologically, you started to talk about it in populations that have been oppressed and marginalized. What, what, what's sort of happening cumulatively there that then would require perhaps a different kind of intervention? And when I say different, I mean, like you just say, like community, but also individual, like what are the different ways in which clinicians can be more supportive? Yeah, and I think that's such an important question. And we haven't studied directly marginalized populations, but I'm certainly hoping to. But I think it really brings us to the sense of self, right? So what is an individual's sense of self like when you're exposed to chronic trauma like this? And, you know, we know from interviews and from talking to these individuals that they often feel like dead inside, um, they don't feel like they can have normal emotions again. They feel disconnected from their feelings. They feel chronic anger, fear, terror, and they feel like the world is not a safe place, right? Which it isn't for them and their children. And so when we think about the sense of self, the, there's actually a neurobiological model of the sense of self now and it's around the default mode network, which is sort of a resting state network of the brain. It's when our brain is in neutral, like our car is in neutral, when we're just sitting there engaging in self-reflective thought. And this network is critical for, you know, experiencing the past in the form of autobiographical memory. It's really important in allowing us to have a future, in allowing us to have an awareness of what we feel, and allowing us to have an embodied sense of ourselves. Mm. And we see, for example, that in childhood trauma, this network is very disrupted. 
that individuals with chronic childhood trauma and post-traumatic stress don't have connections to the part of the brain that helps us to have a future. They don't have connections to the part of the brain that helps us to know what we feel. And they don't have connections to the part of the brain that helps us to have an embodied sense of ourselves in space. Mm. And it really mimics the experience of the sense of self in these traumatized individuals. So I think there's really an urgent need to study this system just as an example in marginalized populations, because I would really predict that it has, you know, similar difficulties. Mm. And then, you know, what does that mean for the individual? What does that mean for treatment? One thing I neglected to say is that this system is also really important in helping us to read others' emotions, right? And to be with another, to be in a community. And so this system is also extremely important. And what does it mean, you know, if this system is not completely online, yeah, for the individual, for the community, and for the intergenerational transmission of trauma? Right, the neurobiological system you're talking about, yeah. yeah. And and as you're talking, I, I know, I don't, you may very well be familiar with the work of Dr. Joy DeGruy um, on post-traumatic slave syndrome is the name of her book, um, but she talks about positive racial socialization, and she uh, talks about the ways in which, um, you know, sort of, I think she uses an example of at a bank, you know, you're waiting in line, there's uh, perhaps a white woman with her child who is running around the bank and it's not an issue um, and, you know, kids are kids. And then there's um, maybe a black mother who's waiting in line and is with her children and the um, black daughter is six or seven and wants to go play or find her or do something else there and is told, no, shush, they hear, or don't move or stick with me or whatever it is. And what that cumulatively does as what you're saying in terms of a sense of self and also how is that even understood or explained or what is that about? And, and to make that be like, yes, that's a real experience. Um, and there's a reason why it's come up in terms of the intergenerational trauma piece, but also what does that do to a system if that keeps on happening to a child over time, even in present day? Yeah. And I think it teaches a child that the world is not a safe place. Mm. And so what do we do, Ruth? Because honestly, I think for a lot of people, and I have a lot of um, Black and Indigenous and people of color as clients and also interracial clients, and I have Black men tell me, I never feel comfort. I am always anxious. My white wife doesn't understand what it's like for me to walk out on the street in any given day and worry about returning the rental moving van when I see a cop car in the parking lot across the street without you by my side as a white woman to somehow be a buffer, perhaps. I mean, what does this really mean or say about our society? What are we needing to sort of lean into or unpack here in terms of really understanding that people who have melanated bodies because of a system of supremacy, not because of an inherent piece, but because of that system of supremacy, the intergenerational trauma piece is in the body, but it's not inherent to that, meaning there's a repair that could be made over time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's incredibly sad hearing those stories, right? And I think what we need is we need education. And Nelson Mandela always said that, right? Education can change the world. So we really, I think, need to teach those in schools, you know, or starting in kindergarten. This is what it's like, 
you know, for individuals of color. And this is what we need to change, right? We need to create tremendous amount of respect, validation, and understanding what it has been like for these individuals for decades. Mm. Yeah. So this sense of self can be met relationally. I know you and I met in person when we were with Diana Fosha's um, Advanced Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy uh, talk that you were giving in New York City a year ago, which I can't, or maybe, I don't know when it was, but it wasn't that long ago, but it was certainly pre-pandemic. And, um, you know, this idea of the relational field and the sense of self is so important to, I know, that model and also um, to many trauma therapies, that sense of validation. Um, let me flip the script a little. We're, we've been talking about populations of color. What happens to the population of white people when there are centuries of witnessing lynchings, witnessing um, beatings, witnessing uh, the dehumanization? What's happening interpersonally, neurobiologically, brain-wise in terms of, you know, sort of what's happening within a body or a population that maybe is experiencing cognitive dissonance at a certain level, but at another level is very much participating in the dehumanization of another human being. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us are numb to this. And I think that's a horrible thing, right? This has happened over and over. And, you know, people have numbed out to this. They have pushed it aside. They have avoided it. And, you know, they've made excuses. And I think that's something we need to face, right? As the white population. You know, where have we gone wrong? Um, what can we do to repair this? And, you know, really getting in touch with the history and, you know, getting in touch with our emotions around this, mm -hmm. right? And really asking us, you know, what is making us afraid or hate somebody, you know, that has a different skin color? It makes no sense, right? And how has this, you know, progressed? So I think, you know, this needs to be part, I think, of an international education program to really start confronting people very gently with this because, you know, again, it triggers yeah. white individuals' own trauma. Right, right. Well, this, right? Is what, this is where I think it's so fascinating. Can you talk about fear and shame in the response of the white-bodied person in general? Um, like, because those are the things that I feel come up a lot, right? I'm afraid and I'm ashamed. Like, I don't want to talk about racial trauma or I don't want to, you know, deal with this issue because I either feel like I'm, I'm, I'm collapsed in shame around it because it somehow means that there's some story about me being a bad person or something just because I'm inheriting a white body, which we're not saying. We're saying that based on the systems and based on your conditioning and your imprinting, that there may be a certain response there. Um, and that also that there's, there's maybe fear around um, around something because of that imprinting generate intergenerationally of the other, right? Regardless of whether or not that other is a construct based on melanated levels, that that's been so cooked in. So, so yeah, how do we begin to kind of work with that or understand that maybe from a inside out way? I think we have to validate uh, the white person's fear. And I think that has been indoctrinated, you know, again, for decades, right? 
that people of color are dangerous, right? And I think it's been indoctrinated on both a conscious and subliminal level, right? And I think a lot on a subliminal level as well, because you can really, I think, you know, get those message, messages into the brain and mind of a person at a subconscious level through very quick exposures, right? And it can trigger you know, that fear response without even being aware of it. And I think that's a really important neurobiological piece to be aware of it. And a lot of marketing firms use this as well, right? Right, right. We need to, you know, provide this information at a subliminal level and to help people understand that and to think about, okay, so if I've been getting all this indoctrination at a subliminal level, how does that affect my conscious way of thinking? Right, right, right. Yeah, and and so, and so, how might you suggest that clinicians who are trying to address the totality of what's experienced today? I mean, it's always been experienced, but especially now. Like, how might a white clinician bring up issues of race or racial trauma or racialized trauma? You know, for a white or a black um, client. Uh, you know, how does that even? Where do we begin there um, for the clinician to maybe think about? I mean, clearly education is important and the understandings that you're talking about, about implicit bias and what's not conscious, but how can a clinician begin to move into a space where they do make it safer for folks to feel like a sense of self, even within the therapeutic encounter, is more available? Which is critical, of course. And I think the way to approach it is to ask about it. You know, and, you know, the way I would, you know, the way I say it is there's been a lot of talk and thought about, you know, racial trauma. You know, and when I bring up that term, what's that like for you? Right? Just to, you know, open up the dialogue to this huge problem. Mm-hmm. And what's it like, you know, if I was... Uh, interviewing an individual of color, I, I would maybe also say, what's it like for you, for a white therapist to ask you this? Mm. And what can we do to make this dialogue as safe as possible? Mm. And, you know, what do you need to teach me to increase my understanding of what's happening mm. for you? Right? Just an, I think an openness and yeah, a dialogue, because the individual may feel very afraid to talk about this because of fear of being shamed, of not being understood, of not being heard, right? So I think it'll also take some time. Mm. Mm. And what I hear this sort of coming off from you as you say this is there's a sort of quality of undefendedness that I'm feeling from the therapist there, which isn't to say, you know, you know, target practice. It's to say that there's an, there's a relaxed, open um, invitation to, as you say, be in dialogue about this, that even if the therapist doesn't have all the answers um, and maybe is on their own I like to say embody the anti-racism journey yeah. <laughs> or path yeah. um, that, that as they're more able to just be with what arises, oh, wow, they may not want to talk about this. They may even be mad at me for bringing it up and I was trying to do a good thing and here yeah. I am now getting yelled at, you know, like how does one as a therapist hold the complexity of what you might get back, even if you think you're trying to do the right thing? 
Mm -hmm. And but I think that's the beauty of the relational, right? Then you check in, and you know, if the person gets angry and says, you know, I don't want to talk about this, then you can say, I'm so sorry. I just thought it would be important to bring up, but of course, it's completely up to you what we speak about. It's your therapy, mm. and you know, I want to do what's best for you. So thanks for that feedback. And if in the future you ever feel that it would be important to discuss please let me know. And how do you want to handle this going forward? Do you want me to bring it up again in the future? Or do you want to bring it up again? Where do we leave it at? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For example, right? Yeah, beautiful. I love that because I think a lot of folks would be hesitant to even say that much because, you know, even folks who are clinicians are kind of can be some people just like normal human people who aren't in the therapeutic chair at that moment can be conflict avoidant. You don't want to have to like, you know, you just, you want it to all be nice, but then what remains unnamed is the elephant in the room, especially at a time like this. And, and then where do we go when it just continues to be such a, such a, such an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, you talked a little bit about the periaqueductal gray. You talked a little bit about the ways in which we have the unconscious mind and the default mode network. And, you know, in an ideal world, how are we as humans? How are we as people when we're available? We're in what we would call, again, using Stephen Porges, eventual vagal state. I would like to think as you and I sort of are now sort of maybe curious, a little excited, perhaps a little bit activated at a certain level because it's a little bit of nerves, right? We're here together doing this thing, right? But yeah. at the same time, like, yeah, it feels okay. Like, I don't feel like I'm under threat at this moment, right? Um, like what's happening there and, 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 and just sort of maybe explaining a little bit about some of the basic brain stuff to, to folks who, who maybe don't know. And, and then what happens with that post-traumatic stress piece where it's just constant where, and then, um, and then, and, and, and maybe relate a little bit more back to what you said in the beginning about how that can help us understand the way in which often, not always, but often with individuals within populations of color, there is a certain kind of perhaps response that we may not understand or we may make up a story about as to why it's there that has to do something with who knows what desire to, to you know, a lack of desire to, to do certain things or to, God forbid I say, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm using the, the I, what's coming to my head right now is like, you know, the rhetoric politically before was things like welfare queens or the, well, you know, the things like that, you know, people who want to receive, but not to, to, you know, sort of generate, which I think is false, but you know, which I know is false, but, um, but that yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. And I think it's so important to think about the sense of self and relationship with the other. Right. And I think in order to, in order for there to be another, you have to have a sense of self and you have to have that default mode network online. And I will never forget talking to somebody who'd really suffered chronic trauma. And, you know, it reminds me of so many of my clients who have suffered chronic trauma and feel like they don't have a sense of self, right? They feel like I don't exist. Mm. And this person gave me great insight because she said, you know, without a self, there's also no other, uh, right? And so this leads to this incredible alienation and feeling of complete isolation. Yeah. Without and, a sense of self, there's no other. I'm just letting that land. Go on. Yeah. Right. And, 
you know, as you read some of the stories from uh, African-Americans, for example, I mean, they feel that total alienation and total sense of estrangement on a daily basis, right? And so I think, you know, given the situation and, you know, I would hypothesize that this default mode network isn't completely online, you know, it's very difficult for there to be another in your life, right? And to use that relational piece which is so important for us to feel a sense of belonging, right? Mm. Of, you know, easing our distress when we're terrified, afraid, or sad. But this needs to be online, right? And I think that's something we really need to study to see, you know, how does this work in chronic uh, racial trauma, Mm. right? Yeah. And so you mentioned also earlier the sense of community is but being a place to, I think, heal also. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? What, what, because clearly we're not living in villages of 150 as we once oh. were. And so, you know, now we're, we're a completely different digital world also. But how can even in this pandemic sort of setup, um, can a sense of community perhaps be supportive to healing? Yeah, and again, that's so critical, right? If the individual has the capacity to be in a community, right? And I would say the most traumatized individuals don't, Mm. which makes it even more difficult. But, you know, many, of course, do. And I think being in a community gives you a a feeling of a sense of belonging, which is so critical, right? And if you don't feel like you belong, that's an incredible, intense, painful feeling. So giving that feeling of belonging and giving that sense of being understood by others, right? And, you know, getting others to be able to take the perspective of what what shoes you're walking in, right? And showing empathy, showing compassion, and just being there, being seen, being heard, right? Mm -hmm. Just so important. Yeah, so I'm really hearing you say in so many different ways that having a sense of self is supportive to you, but is supportive to others. Absolutely. Right. And that, and in, go ahead. And I think that's also at the root of the intergenerational transmission of trauma, right? If I don't have a sense of self, right? If I, I don't know what I feel, if I don't have a future, if I don't have the capacity to read the emotional state of another, you know, my child is going to be affected, right? Because my ability to read, mentalize the child and have, you know, the capacity to, you know, to transmit this, you know, there's a future, there's hope that's going to be diminished, right? And so we then grow up together, you know, with a feeling of hopelessness, disconnected from our feelings and disconnected from the world, mm. right? Not, of course, not in all cases. Right? Sure, sure. 
And, you know, as you're talking, I'm realizing that if we're talking about populations of color, and again, there's also this whole other piece around indigenous populations, and I know you're in Canada, so I know that there's this whole other piece around genocide and of, you know, I mean, there's, there's the exploitation and there's the extraction of labor with Black American populations. There's the genocide of indigenous and First Nations folks here and in Canada, and there's a whole, and there's, of course, the AAPI community also, and the Latinx community and the Chicano community. Community and you know we could go on and on and on. I guess the point that we're sort of talking about here is about what happens in targeted populations, and more specifically, based on the uprisings right now, talking about Black Americans and the intergenerational trauma there. So I just want to make that clear. Like, just clearly, there's a lot of populations that have experienced um, and and can be worked with in in different ways. Um, but this piece around this sense of self and the relationality and the idea that um, this sense of community is only accessible for healing for people who have enough of a sense of self online to be able to access it. Um, <clears throat> that, that's really poignant to me. And what's also coming up for me is that with Black Americans, oftentimes there is a sense of resilience and joy and creativity mm-hmm. that, yeah. that I feel a lot of folks who are white, who have had to give up their Slovenian, their Russian, their Irish, their Italian in order, you know, ness, their essential essence and cultural pieces to assimilate into American whiteness, that there's something there that's like celebrated and that is connective and, and, and talk about how that lives and where, where that is maybe the counter to some of what you're talking about in terms of the dorsal vagal response. Absolutely. And I think this is why this population has survived, right? Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a chance of survival, right? And yeah, you see that, right, in the people, the resilience, yeah, and their capacity for joy to be in community, to sing together, right? And to be with each other. And there's a pride, right? And I think that pride is often very suppressed, but when it comes out, I think it's incredible. I will never forget, I went to Chicago to a conference a few days after Barack Obama was elected. And what was just striking to me is when I entered the hotel, you know, all the cleaning staff of the rooms, their posture was different. You know, I greeted them and they greeted me back and they're, you know, they were much more relational. And I thought, wow. Mm. I've never seen this before. And that shift, I think, was really striking to me. Mm. And so, yeah, there's this, there's this resilience there. Yeah. And I love that because you're, you're, because what you're saying is often like we, we, we hear like in classrooms, for example, it makes a big difference if a black student is taught by a black teacher. Mm hmm. Um, as opposed to a white teacher. And you're saying, you know, like seeing Barack Obama be elected to a person of color meant a lot in terms of what's possible, my sense of self, back to your terms, and, 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 and how I feel, and then my engagement, my social engagement. It was really striking to me. I will never forget that. Hmm. Yeah. And so conversely, I feel like there's a lot of times that white people or white populations often, not always, but then kind of feel, I don't want to say jealous, that's not really the right word, <laughs> but you know, like, like, you know, I can't dance or kind of, you know, kind of thing, but you know, but they can dance or you can, you know, yeah. what, so, so back to this sort of like 
maybe the trauma of whiteness. What is the trauma of having, you know, as an Italian American, um, and then Haitian and Dominican also, but as someone who grew up with my Italian family, it was like, we couldn't learn Italian. We weren't taught it. We had to assimilate. We had to be a part of what it meant to be American and be normal. What's given up there that, that, that people who are assimilated to be white are going to, could be healing or want to do so that they can reclaim more of a sense of self and not be stuck in fear and shame also, even though there's privilege because there's racial privilege, but oftentimes internally, there's still a lot of fear and shame. And maybe that needs to be part of the healing, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's in parallel, right? That both parties are allowed to reconnect to their own culture of origin. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that would create a very nice parallel and a very nice parallel experience. Of course, very different on many, many levels. But, but again, to, to help find some parallel and some way of connection. Yeah. Of rebooting to their own history. I know. Um, and, and, and do you have examples? I know Bessel van der Kolk talks a lot about the, the body and how those pieces are, are structured. The relational pieces are structured in the body and, you know, the body mind, you're, you're the, I mean, it's all connected. You're, you're, um, how does that then become embodied in a different way? I mean, what does a reparative racial, multiracial society, community, encounter what you know what 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 happens there is it all about safety and a sense of self is it about what, what what's happening inside when someone feels like yeah you know i can lean into recognizing that i have someone who's different than me but also very much human and i'm just <laughs> connecting with them as a person and i think it would be very freeing right almost like a dog being let off its leash, mm. right? Allow more room for movement, for expression, for internal peace and peace in the community and world peace, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really what we need in this world, right? In this messed up world we live in at the moment, right? Well, in, and in that way, how do we work within a system that very much is still structurally in many ways set up for division? Mm-hmm. Meaning that like, how can we do the healing within the system that is set, that, set up that way? Do we find pockets? Do we pull away? Do we just turn off the news so that our nervous systems aren't fired up all the time? Um, you know, do we, do we find smaller connective ways to, to sort of calm ourselves? Absolutely. I think we find pockets, we find communities, we turn off the news, you know, 90% of the time, obviously we get some news, right? right? I mean, it's horrible. And it's so activating. And, you know, we make change in these small pockets. And hopefully over time, those different pockets will connect and grow. Mm. Mm. Yeah, almost like little seeds. Yeah. So we start with seeds. Then the seeds connect, you know, until, you know, we have a critical mass. Right? So through these different pockets, we build, we move towards a critical mass because a critical mass is required for change. Right. right. 
Well, I love what you're saying because I think that it gives people a sense of hope that like you can start where you are, start with your community, start with your friendships. Like, look, you know, because I've heard it say a lot that like, I don't have any black friends if they're a white person. I don't have any, you know, and then I'm like, well, you could, you know, not in a performative way, not in a tokenistic way, but you could expand your circle and see, you know, where, where, where might you begin to have a more diverse friend circle, which doesn't mean you're abandoning your friends, but like that, that can be part of the healing that can be intentional when you have awareness. Um, And, and do you have experiences clinically where you've had success or maybe even failures where you've had challenges where you've brought up these things? You mentioned a couple of um, examples earlier about what a therapist might do or might say, but do you have any maybe clinical examples that again, masks or, you know, you don't have to name any names um, uh, around these issues? Yeah, since I went to this lecture several years ago, I've brought it up every time when I see, you know, an individual of color. And generally, the responses have been extremely open. Sometimes people aren't ready to talk about it. But I think they appreciate it being on the table. And in most cases, you know, there's been great appreciation and the person's able to express how this has affected them, make meaning of it, you know, how it has really uh, created where they are in their life right now, or, you know, played a critical role in that. And uh, it has given us a chance to really incorporate that into the whole treatment piece, right? Because Mm -hmm. without that, right? The treatment piece would have been incomplete, right? Because it's such a big part of what the person's experiencing. Mm. Yeah. And so people have really had different responses, I hear you say, but that it, that it feels relieving and connected yeah. and appropriate. Absolutely. I would say nine and three quarters out of 10. Mm-hmm. I had one person once who wasn't ready to talk about it and they just said they weren't ready. And that's fine. Yeah. It's up to them. Yeah. 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 Have you ever brought it up with folks who are white clients and, and, and sort of explored, I'm just curious, uh, an unpacked, like, you know, where, cause, cause oftentimes it's not, it won't be an issue for people who are white. They'll have, they'll talk about an abusive parent. They'll talk about an alcoholic spouse. They'll talk about a sense of not worthiness. They'll talk about, but what is it like to maybe bring up a racial issue or would you, or would it be helpful or not to say, hmm, I wonder if there's something there about that too, meaning the structure of oppression, the structure of white supremacist ideological thinking that plays out in terms of your own self-concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very interesting. Uh, I talk about it with uh, some military members mm. and because often they're triggered by, you know, Muslim pop by the Muslim population because you know they've been to Afghanistan and to Iraq and so that's a trigger for them and often they feel very guilty and they say to me you know I'm not racist but you know I can't be in the room with another Muslim and so we talk about you know what that's like we, we talk about you know their guilt and you know what is like being triggered and that this is a physiological response and how we can overcome that And so the goal, once, you know, we've processed some of that trauma, how we can help them move then to be in a room with 
a Muslim and, you know, not feel that threat and feel okay and really connect on that human level. Yeah, that's so amazing. Can you tell me what's happening physiologically when that shift is happening, when that transformation is happening um, from fear to comfort? Yeah, what we're really moving away from is, you know, when you have that instant fear and terror, right? You, you know, you see, you know, somebody who's Muslim out of the corner of your eye, and it's that reptilian brain, which is innate and reflexive, right? So boom, you're not even consciously aware of it. Boom, you've got that reaction of fear of hypervigilance. And I think as we bring online higher brain structures like the cortex that help us to stand back and reflect and no longer act reflexively, right? Once we're able to do that, right, through trauma processing, then we can say, oh, hey, you know, this is just another human, just like me. I'm not in Afghanistan, or I'm not in Iraq. I'm not gonna be attacked. You know, we're both here picking up lunch. Yeah. Right, right. No, I, I, that mental, that mindful, you know, it, it really is, I think, why you, why one practices mindfulness, because yes. you have an open place where you're looking at something with a bit of a bird's eye view and a little bit of distance. I really do say, I think a lot of people have a misinformation maybe about what the purpose of mindfulness is in a lot of ways, because it's not just to sort of sit in the Zen calm state and just be blissed out. It's this idea of being able to be with your experience, even if it is a trigger and then not just have that fire off into a behavioral action that can then be negatively impactful to yourself or others. And I think what's also critical to know is that in trauma, those brain connections often aren't developed yet. And so through therapy and through neuroplasticity, we need to bring those circuits online. Mm. So what's not connected? Can you just unpack that for a moment? Often that cortex, you know, that prefrontal cortex that has that capacity to be reflective and mindful, that's often not online, especially, you know, when we're reacting in such innate reflexive uh, ways. Mm-hmm. And so we need to strengthen those connections, right? That, you know, even if we're activated a little bit or triggered a little bit, that this part of the brain comes online as soon as possible to help us stand back, reflect, and really evaluate the situation from the present perspective. From today, not from, from the place today. of the trauma trigger. Yeah. Because this part of the brain also is involved in helping us have a sense of time, right? A sense of now, which if this part of the brain is offline and we're just dealing at the reptilian level, we feel like we're back at the scene of the trauma, right? Mm. Which is a flashback response, which is timeless, right? So we're actually feeling like we're at, back at the scene of the trauma. We don't have that sense of time, that sense of now, that sense of the present. Yeah. So what I really hear you saying, and I really want listeners to get this, because this is really what you're the expert in, is understanding that there is a part of the brain that when trauma is, I I sort of like to think of trauma as a stopped process, um, Mm -hmm. and that there's a part of the brain there that doesn't get developed once that sort of obstacle that blockade has been sort of put in there that allows you to have 
frankly, perspective or distance or whatnot, um, but that it's a physiological thing. And that when you say strengthening, you're saying strengthening the capacity to build up the muscle. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, of, your, of your neural networks that, that can be with the awareness of the traumatic trigger and also rest in the today, present moment okayness that isn't that. Is that right? Absolutely. Very well said, Francesca. <laughs> <laughs> You're the expert. I'm just kind of trying to follow your lead here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and, and because I think that it's important, at least it's important for me to have clients. It's been helpful to me personally, but also I think for clients, like, listen, this is your physiology. These are the neurons that fire together, wire together. And we have to be aware of that. This is just how it goes because yeah. with your intention and intervention and some work, they can shift and be wired differently. And you do have a different experience. It's not so effortful. Absolutely. And I think that's also key to having hope to heal. Right. Mm. Can you say more about that? Well, knowing that things can change, right gives us hope, right? The client and the therapist, right? And I think that hope is so critical for change, right? There's nothing worse than going to see somebody and them telling you, well, you're a hopeless case, you'll never get better, right? Mm. That's a really toxic place to start from, right? But to have hope and to know that the brain is very malleable and that it can change right? Through good treatment. I think it's really important, Beautiful. I love that. And I I think that maybe is a good place to end on for today, um, unless there's more that you want to say, because I feel like a lot of people think they're, I've had clients say to me, I'm broken. I feel broken. And then I give them the kintsugi bowls, you know, the Japanese bowls with the gold, the gold uh, glue in between. And, you know, I say, well, this is more valuable now because it had shattered and now it's pieced back together in this unique way. Yeah. And often treatment is really about the rebirth of the self, right? If individuals have never had a self for the first time throughout treatment, they're going to develop a sense of self. Right. Mm. And I, and I hear you saying that, 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 that good treatment, meaning the good therapeutic alliance the good relationship with someone and you know and it may or may not always be a therapist sometimes it can be a super great partner or friend or absolutely yeah um but that that really is is helpful to shifting but that the bottom line we want to leave folks with at least i do for today is that there is a way to change this limbically neurologically and you know with within your own way if we strengthen a different part of our brains through awareness absolutely all right, Dr. Ruth Lanius, uh, Harris Woodman Chair in Psyche and Soma. Uh, she is at the University of Western Ontario and um, just a brilliant woman and um, professional uh, contributor to the field of trauma healing. And I just want to say thank you so much for appearing on Rerooted. Um, always good to see you. Thanks, Francesca. It was a pleasure to be with you. All right. Take care. Bye.